0: You're listening to The Retail Perch with Sheikha Raman and Gary Hawkins.
1: We're going to discuss industry challenges and opportunities in grocery retail, AI, current and upcoming trends, and so much more.
0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Retail Perch. And uh, we're coming up, it's past Thanksgiving as we're recording this episode. We're rushing into Christmas and into Christmas. Twenty twenty four. It feels like I need to be in a flying car with the Jetsons next to me, Gary. And it, I'm still it, driving it, a gas guzzling car. <laughs>
1: <laughs> It'll be here in a couple of weeks, Shaker.
0: <laughs> I know, I know. It's been it's been a hell of a year though. I mean, you know, and I was just talking to somebody, it's just barely been a year since Chat GPT has been out. And it seems yeah, like we've right, been man. kind of accelerated and catapulted into the future overnight. Yes.
1: Right? And yeah. now
0: Chat GPT can talk. I've actually had a meaningful conversation with uh, him, her, whatever you want to call, right? And well, I think we live in a different world, you know, and a year from now, who knows where we're going to be, right? So
1: that's right. That's right. Exciting
0: times. And, um, you know, I heard somebody who heard one of our episodes with uh, Paul McEnroe, the barcode guy, right? And they were, he's like, Ever since I heard that episode, I feel I need to listen to every episode. So I'm feeling very, I'm feeling under pressure to deliver high quality content.
1: <laughs> so Scott, no pressure here today. That's right.
0: Yeah. So anyway, None whatsoever. So, so today we have a very interesting angle to what we talk about. You know, retail. We're typically talking about cutting edge technology and you know all the cool stuff happening. But today we're going to take the people angle because. You know, what's retail without people, right? Uh, people is what makes retail happen. Yeah, tech is used to operate it, but without people, you don't have shoppers, you don't have people to service you, you don't have uh, you don't have a company. So uh, we have here today Scott, and Scott's going to introduce himself, but he's got a fascinating background. He's also an author. He's in the process of releasing his second book, which he will be doing his own narration for the audio book that we found out that he actually passed the
2: audition test on. So congratulations, Scott, but welcome to the Retail Perch. Great to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, I do a pretty good impression of myself. So I convinced the publisher that, yes, I could narrate my own book in my own voice. So (laughs) I was fortunate. Um, Well, thank you for having me. And I do want to mention, we don't think of it in these terms, but management, the managing of employees is a form of technology. You know, it's not mechanical and it's not digital, but it's a way of doing things to have influence over the world around us. And it's subject to the same burdens of all technology, such as that it continuously be updated or quickly becomes outdated. And I think that's the case that, you know, plenty of retailers are willing to change lots of things about their business, but they're not willing to change as readily the way they manage their people, even as their people change. And so, for me, that's the focus on my work is the human side of business. And so, um, so, so my story—you're is-
0: talking to a tech nerd, and you immediately proven me wrong about what I thought technology was. So that's that's well, I, I've learned my bit today on this episode. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, you're if absolutely. I can be a
2: terrible guest within the first thirty seconds of the podcast, and I've I've made my mark on the world, so. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. Again, like I said, it's, it's I mean—it's not technology the way we think of it, right? It's something that's digital or, or mechanical, but it is something, it's a way of doing things that needs to be updated and that, you know, it's, it's really important. And the introduction of digital and technical uh, technologies, it doesn't relieve us of the burden of those human elements if we're going to employ people and if we want to manage and coach them and bring out the best performance. And so all my work is about how to do that.
1: Neat. So Scott, tell us, tell us how you got to where you are today and what you do today. So I, I think your background is interesting.
2: Sure. So I was originally a film student at New York University in my 20s when I was diagnosed with cancer. And so I had to drop out of school and immediately spend you know a year in full-time treatment. And they used to teach us in film school, pay attention to the human condition so you can create authentic characters. And so I sat there in chemotherapy in a circle of all these other people getting treatment. And I noticed that here are a lot of people in pretty similar circumstances, but having very different experiences of chemotherapy. And there wasn't a correlation between their diagnosis and what they're going through that day. It was much more about their reactions to it. And that made me curious that why is it in the same situations people behave and react differently? Well, that turned out to be a very useful um, question for me for everything else that I do. After my treatment, a friend of mine was putting on a conference and said, why don't you be our keynote speaker and talk about leadership and how your story applies to leadership? That one speech has led to 30 years of invitations to speak at, you know, keynote different conferences and meetings. So I've been a professional business motivational speaker for decades. But after doing that for a number of years, focusing on, you know, overcoming adversity, peak performance leadership, I got restless that I didn't have more experience actually in leadership. A lot of people, in my audiences, had a lot more experience than I did. That always bothered me. And I was starting with family, and my wife and I were thinking about how I want to make change. I don't want to travel quite as much. So I saw an airline magazine ad for a company called Edible Arrangements, which today is a household name. Back then, it wasn't as well known. And I like the idea of a franchise, sort of like in chemotherapy, of all these people doing the same thing, but getting different results in their businesses. So I thought that's a great way for me to actually learn about leadership, try out my concepts, make some money, but still be on the road speaking. And so I did that for a number of years, really struggled with my employees for the first few, which made me feel like a hack as a speaker on leadership. And so I thought, I better get this figured out, not only to help the business uh, you know, with the edible arrangements, but to also so I can be a credible speaker and actually have something real, not theoretical, but something in, you know that in the weeds can really help my clients. And over yeah, time, the we started- syndrome. So You had the imposter yeah. syndrome. oh big time big time and so I thought I better figure this out and so but I still had the income from the professional speaking that it took some of the burden off the retail business so I could really experiment work with my manager to really crack the code and so part of it was shifting my own mindset in terms of how I saw my employees instead of calling them you know lazy and entitled and all that stuff I tried more curious to understand what does motivate them what do they care about and that shift in mindset looking at them differently proved to be very valuable. We started to figure out how to inspire them, how to create loyalty, how to build culture, and how to boost performance. And eventually that correlated better customer service and much better sales. So we became the top edible arrangement store of 110 in California. And then we acquired one of the worst ones and we turned it around within a year and had them both profitable. Well, I started getting invitations to speak to other companies about what they can do to boost employee performance. And so uh, I used to work exclusively in the franchise industries. my first book is about top franchise uh, leaders and what they do. Um, But now I work in a variety of industries. And so uh, I just finished my second book called Stop the Shift Show, Turn Your Struggling Hourly Workers into a Top Performing Team. So it's all about not just my personal experience, but my interviews and encounters with a lot of business leaders who manage hourly workers who've cracked the code, who aren't struggling with retention. Aren't struggling with how to find people who, and not they don't have problems, they have to have managers. There's always issues, but right. they really uh, embrace their employees and they have a great experience and they're able to do this while controlling labor costs. So that's the focus of my work now. And uh, that's what the book will be about.
0: Neat, neat, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I clearly, Gary, I, you know, we talk about what data and technology can do to businesses, but there's nothing like, um, uh, firing up the real engine of your business, which is the people behind it, right? Yes. I mean, this is, uh, when you can get your team enthusiastic and focused around a mission and create some kind of uh, a uh, a really, you know, a, a call to action and get these people excited about coming into work and, and adding to people's lives, nothing can turn around a business like that. I mean, no amount of technology can possibly ever do that because ultimately people are respond to, I think, emotional cues more than they do, you know, cool tech, right? Oh,
1: so no question about it. And I think that's certainly challenging enough to do when times and, and business is stable, right? It becomes even more important, but also harder to do, you know, during times of disruption and transformation and everything we're seeing in the world today, caused by
0: technology, So so Scott, how would you look at what's happened in the last two, three years now? You know, this big, the the quiet quitting and the whole, you know, people not wanting to work and, you know, how does that, uh, how, how do you view that? What's your perspective? And maybe, and I'm sure there are some businesses, even in that climate thrived and they were able to get motivated employees back
2: in and keep the business running. What do you think is the difference between people who did and didn't? I think the last few years are a byproduct of what's happened the last few centuries, if not for millennia. You know, the, um, the, the social dynamics within business environments within work environments um, have always been not so great, right? Like most people, they suffer through their work. Most bosses complain about their employees. Um, you know, people quit, you know, us, you know, today young people aren't willing to stick around and suffer through a job. So they don't seem loyal. Us older people brag about how much we are willing to suffer and take such pride in that for some reason, right? Um, And a lot of that is while technology improves and why people will change the way they market, they'll change their product lines. um, Most managers, and I have data in my book to discuss this, most people who manage employees are on the job for 10 years before they get any formal leadership training. Most people, um, they manage the way they were managed. And so there's this tradition of, I think, oftentimes bad leadership and bad management. So that's a part of it. And part of the tradition is to blame the employees, right? The big phrase is kids these days. And so right now, it's very easy to want to look at, you know, young millennials, to look at Generation Z and point out all the things that make them difficult to work with. I happen to agree that these are terrible things about them as a Gen Xer, right? But when I say kids these days, then I'm horrified because I realize I'm part of passing on the tradition. Whether or not today's workforce in retail is better or worse, it doesn't matter. What matters is, how do we get through to them? How do we hire them? And how can we change as managers to get through to them? When the marketplace changes in terms of their preferences for products and services, we don't judge them. We just adapt to that. Well, when the labor market changes though, we do tend to um, mm. judge them. We, you know, They want more flexibility over their schedule. So we call them again, lazy and title, that sort of thing. And again, not that there isn't a certain amount of truth. If you wanna you know, make your own observation from your perspective, but those are, observations aren't useful. What is useful is to say, how are they different? So how can I adapt? Not enable them, but how can I adapt to get the most of them? When you ask those kinds of questions, this is what I've observed. You're able to get a much better performance. And so okay. prior to the pandemic, you know we were able to do things the way they've always been done. Then everyone fired their employees because they shut their businesses down. And then employees were able to get some free money. And they're able to search their souls. And they're able to search the internet. And find other opportunities. So when suddenly everybody wanted their employees back, the employees were like, oh, wait a second. You know, my, my son is one of them. His first job was out in and out burger. Well, then he turned 18 and realized he could make more money delivering fast food than he could making it. So part of it is there's more competition for the same workers. And um there's there's a whole lot that has changed. Our job isn't to judge it, it's to understand it and update our management technology to get to, so we can connect with today's workers and get better performance from them.
0: Interesting. I was reading an essay by Marcus Aurelius, uh, you know, the great Stoic Roman emperor, second century AD, and he's writing this essay about my God, the youth of today, there's no hope for us. These people are, you know, this this is the end of the world. And it's the same story. You could pull that into the 21st century and it would feel like it was written by somebody, you know,
2: yesterday. Yeah, uh, people have, in my presentations, I actually do that. I, I, I quote um, a, a Time Magazine cover, uh, cover story, then one from the 1970s from the New York. And I go back all the way to Aristotle, who, like you said, ancient times, and here he is bagging on young people. And like my joke is that Aristotle's parents even complained about him. Like what's with this kid? All he does is sit around and think like people have always complained about younger people. And we have to realize that in ourselves and how that informs the way we manage.
0: That's that's true. Yeah. So, so uh, what is the so what is the DNA to figure out how to adapt? I mean, what is it that you found works?
2: Okay, so it starts with ourselves, not that it's our fault as bosses or employers, but we need to be aware of our own assumptions, our own biases and our own management style. Right. What is our belief system? Right. And does that align with how today's workers are? So we have to come from a place of curiosity and ask questions, to understand what matters most to them. You know, at the latter part of the pandemic, when everyone was desperate for employees, the assumption was, well, they want money. They're not coming because they want more money. So everyone started throwing money at the problem. Well, you can't sustain that model. And a lot of people, even if they took the job, they didn't stay. Those are hard needs. But every generation, every individual has what I call soft needs, emotional needs that they want met as well. And you know, they want a sense of belonging. They want a sense of purpose. They want praise. They want respect. They want flexibility. And it changes from generation to generation. You know, when I was in high school, the top athletes, of which I was not one, but they could play multiple sports and do other things. Well, today, if you're a serious high school athlete, you're only allowed to play one sport and you have to play a club team. You can't necessarily have a job. Things really have, are, are, are different. So we have to understand what are their soft needs? Just like there's hard skills and soft skills, there's also hard needs and soft needs. And if you're just spending money trying to meet the hard needs even better, but you're not meeting their soft needs, there's a missed opportunity. You know, we know that human beings will pay more for a better experience as customers, right? We'll shop at a more expensive store. We'll stay at a nicer hotel to have a better experience. Employees will accept less for a better work experience. Not that we should pay them less. I believe in paying people well. But if they feel a real sense of connection, a sense of culture, a sense of belonging, they're not going to leave that to go make another dollar per hour. All things being equal, they will. So don't let things be equal meet their soft needs build a culture you know it's much cheaper and it's a lot more effective
0: so, so. and more meaningful
2: in some way right you're you're yeah. adding a little bit more meaning right oh, and yeah. and people want that people aren't just inspired by money right, right. and so these pe- people who struggle to to find and definitely struggle to keep they're not going to solve their problems by throwing money at it. I mean, you you can't sustain that anyway. You know, for me, my margins are important. I'm in business to make money. Yeah, I want to make a difference, but I also want to make money. I'm not going to throw it away. So what are the other ways in which I can get people excited, where I can attract them and keep them, where maybe I'm not the best employer in terms of what I pay, but no one comes even close in terms of how I make my employees feel? And it doesn't require that much more time or that much more effort. It's just more focus. And when you can make them feel great, they're going to make customers feel great. And that's going to impact the bottom line.
1: So, so, you know, certainly there are differences generation to generation, but Scott, do you find that some of those, I'm going to use the word, you know, base or foundational uh, soft needs remain the same over time? Because, you know, my experience, you know, from a I spent a lot of years as a retailer, right? Dealing with customers and working with retailers around the world. And I found that recognition, for example, was almost universal uh, in its value, right? No matter the country, the culture, et cetera. Um, I, I would think some of these things, while they may somewhat change, are sort of foundational.
2: I agree. I think that people want a sense of, they want recognition. They want a sense of belonging. They want respect. Um, They want safety. But the definition of safety, you know, when I was young, it was like physical safety. These days, um, I think younger generations want more emotional safety, right? Like the concept of um, taking a mental health break, you know, older generations, you know, we laugh at that, but that is something that younger generations value. It's like, is, is it inherently worse? I don't know that it is, but us older people tend to think so. So there are some differences. Um, but there are also some universal concepts that are there. So our job is definitely to meet those universal needs, but also customize to meet some of these other soft needs that yeah. may not be as important to us but might be important to the people who we employ.
0: Hmm. So you talk about these uh, four type of four types of hourly employees, personality types, right? Curious, What do you when you mean four personality types of hourly employees, that really piqued my curiosity. Like, what do you? I, I've heard of four person, personality types, but uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I could talk about that. But, but even before we get to that, I think it's important just to notice the huge difference between hourly workers and those on salary. I spent a lot of time in the beginning of the book discussing that because there's a billion books on leadership and management, but it looks at all people as kind of the same thing. Hourly workers are very different. They tend to be, uh, you know, the relationships tend to be more transactional than relational. They tend to have fewer skills. Their lives are a bit more crazy. They have a lot more to juggle because their hours are not necessarily guaranteed. They're not necessarily the same. They might be coming from or going to another job or to practice, right, or to a band performance. Um, They might be students whose schedules change. Um, they, uh, you know, their, their lives might be, there might be a bit more upheaval. There's a lot of things that are different and we really need to appreciate that. And so, you know, we expect people on salary to, you know, to buy into the company mission, that kind of thing, you know, those on who are hourly workers, that's not necessarily the case. They also skew younger. Well, it takes the human brain 25 years to fully develop. So you might have a 22 year old who's still maturing, who's still trying to figure it out. And you think, well, they lack common sense. When really, no, the the brain chemistry and the synapses, all the connections are still being made there, and they need the maturity of an older manager to help them kind of navigate that stuff. it's It's a completely different group. Um now, so there are lots of assessments out there that break people down into personality types. you know, there's Myers, Briggs, and you know, we're familiar with those things. And I'm always very careful about anything that assigns people labels because, no matter how many different types of labels you come up with, it's still a form of generalizing. And we want to make sure we honor people's individuality. The real value there is just understanding that people have different personalities. And therefore, as managers, we sort of need to be able to appreciate and understand that and adapt to it. And so that's kind of you know the main thing. But if I, you know, I have a very informal, very unscientific approach in the book where I talk about different personality types and how they can be useful and where they might need help. So I talk about doers. These are people who like their focus is get the job done, right? No matter what. Great people to have on your staff, because if you want something done, they're going to get it done. But they might rush through it and they might step on others' toes and they might not want to hear a lot of outside feedback. Those are doers. Then you have thinkers. Takes them a little bit longer, right? Because they need to understand what the task is. They need to consider all possibilities. They want to know the sense of why. So they're not going to get things done as fast, but when they get them done, they'll get them done well. And when there's a problem... They're very good at coming up with solutions. Um, we have those who are more uh, emotional, right? They respond to uh, emotions. So I call them uh, connectors, people who are really good at building relationships, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm trying to think of what the fourth one was that I came up with. Uh, we have doers, we have thinkers, uh, we have connectors. and again, Oh, feelers is the one. So feelers are very emotional in nature. Now we tend to call them you know, thin-skinned, right? Or snowflakes, but they have a lot of empathy and they can connect with other people uh, as well. They're not necessarily social, but they understand human beings as well. So they can really provide great customer experiences. When someone complains, they can listen well, um, as opposed to connectors. So there's an emotional piece, but it's more social. So they're really good at rallying people together. They're really good at uh, the the gift of gab, that kind of thing. But they might get distracted from the social stuff. And the emoters, if something hurts their feelings, they might kind of break down. Everyone has their advantages and disadvantages. Now that's totally unscientific. That's just sort of four categories. The point that I try to make is to understand generally, what's the kind of person you have and what's the best position um, or that's suited for them. And yeah, maybe they're not so good on customer service because they're not social, but maybe they're good at something more analytical because they're a thinker, right? To really understand that and adapt your management to who they are, rather than just lumping them all together. You know, a good coach doesn't coach every single player the same way. A good manager wouldn't manage every single employee the same way.
0: Got it. So how did you use that in your business? Because I, I know, I mean, that's a really interesting thing where you felt that you had to really kind of get the, be in the trenches and earn the leadership stripes, so to say, right? Yeah. To really feel that you're a credible speaker.
2: So how, how did you employ these in your in your business? Well, In the beginning, I thought, I'm just going to cross-train everyone. I want everyone to be able to do everything for all the obvious reasons, right? Helps with scheduling. You can move people around and all that. But what ended up happening naturally is some people at edible arrangements, they just weren't that good at designing fruit baskets. They could do it, but it took them a lot longer. But boy, were they good on the phones and were they great with upselling their customers, right? Then one employee who, yeah, she was okay on phones, but she didn't enjoy it. And she could make a decent arrangement. But her superpower was being able to wrap the arrangements in the cellophane, tie on the balloons, check for quality and get them ready for delivery everybody just, they had certain talents and certain interests that just sort of naturally emerged. And so rather than resisting that, I just embraced it. Hmm. And, you know, I wanted people to at least be decent at two things. They need to be experts in everything, but they need to be at least, you know, at least great in one, but decent at, at, at least two. And so kind of, you know, recognizing that and appreciating people's differences and not looking at them as workers, but as individuals who happen to be working.
0: Because Gary, I know, you know, we talk about grocery and, you know, so much of um, uh, the experience when you walk into a store and you're walking around and you're looking for help, you know, because by the way, Scott, the, the way I founded my company is because I couldn't find stuff in the supermarket. So I decided to find a solution, build a solution to, to solve that. But I, I recognize that so much of our shopping experience in retail is impacted by, you know, how we're greeted, how we're treated, how we walk out of the store yep. feeling. And and like you said, I, I don't mind paying more going to a store where I feel I'm treated better and I walk out with a better sense of these people value me than yep. going to a place where I feel that, hey, I get a great, great price, but I'm going to spend one more hour and possibly not such high quality goods uh, coming out of there. Right.
1: Yeah. So so absolutely. The the experience dictates, you know, as a shopper, if you're going to come back or not, or how you're going to view that that retailer, that merchant. Well, to go a bit deeper on that, one of the things I find really interesting is I'm going to make a generalization here. But, you know, in the in the supermarket world, we see a lot of younger shoppers gravitating towards self-checkout. You know, they can come in the store, find what they want, check themselves out, walk out the door, and not have to interact with other people. And then, you know, we see other shoppers, and again, generalizing, typically seem to be a little bit older, enjoy going through the the manned checkouts where where they can actually have a conversation with, you know, the man, woman, that's that's uh, the cashier. Uh, and you know, I know back in our uh, uh, retail store years ago, we had shoppers that would literally stand in line two or three times as long to check out through their favorite cashier. But Scott, uh, how does that resonate at all? Uh, Am I overgeneralizing in terms of younger people, older people
2: and, and how they view social interaction? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. What I read literally just in the last week is that a lot of retail chains are now moving back to traditional checkout and away from self-checkout for the reasons that you were just saying. I don't know how that breaks down between younger people and older people, but it's gotta be a a meaningful percentage of the customer base if they're planning on changing that. Because at the end of the day, human beings are social creatures. And we socialize and we connect in different ways, but we need to have human interaction. Now, in my book, I profile different businesses that rely on hourly workers. I know that a lot of the people who, you know, watch and listen to uh, to this show are from uh, the grocery uh, world. And one of the chains, our profile is Gelson's. uh, just an absolutely first class grocery chain based here in Southern California, not as big as Ralph's, but my family, we pay a premium. We're willing to go because they provide such an incredible experience in all kinds of, of meaningful ways. And they do well because people want to have that experience and they- And they like the social aspect of it that, you know, the the cashiers, they know you and and you know them. And that that's really meaningful. Uh, And they're they're experts at that. And people pay a premium for it. Yeah.
0: And I guess the secret, Gary, there is how do you infuse that DNA into the employees where they care enough about the customers coming in and they don't think of this as, okay, I'm just here to make a paycheck and go back home. They're yep. they're finding some deeper meaning in their job and getting some satisfaction out of it. Yeah, and that, no, that's, that's an art, right? I mean, that you need you need a team of leaders or managers who understands that and is able to because this is top down. I mean, this this culture has to come top down.
2: Sure. Yeah. Well, and most businesses don't know what culture is. They think culture is buying them pizza or giving them gift cards or you know, treating them like family. I hear that all the time. Like, what does that even mean? right? There's being nice to people and that's nice, but that's not culture, right? You think of the military, what a strong culture that is. They don't get that by buying soldiers pizza, right? Right. Or giving them gift cards, right? Culture is, is specifically is the way two or more people interact. It's the social norms between them, that they're focused on the same thing. They want the same things and they have rituals that reinforce that, right? So it's a common set of beliefs, way of looking at things, and then a common set of behaviors that are a reflection of that and reinforce that. And so what that means is for a business, I say that culture needs to exist in three places: in their heads, in the hearts, and most importantly, on the floor where the work takes place. So intellectually, they need to know what is it that we're all working towards, right? Whether you have a formal mission statement or just a general understanding, everyone needs to focus on the same thing: a strong sense of why. And most businesses they put up, you know, a website, web page that says their mission. Or there's a poster on the wall and then no one knows what it is. Everyone forgets right. it. It's meaningless. It, it's more of a marketing piece that's outward facing than something internal for employees. Yes. Yeah, check. People, right? right. So we yeah. need to kind of define it. But more importantly than a mission or a set of values, what's our way of doing things? What do we stand for? Right. And, um, you know, whether it's integrity or teamwork or fun or, you know, whatever your, your values are. And most companies, they it tend to be a similar set of values. What really differentiates are how those values are expressed on the floor. You want employees to really feel it, that sense of loyalty. If you and I look at the, um, look at things the same way and there's familiarity there, whether we have the same political beliefs, ritual beliefs, like the same sports teams, that creates a certain bonding. And if you and I are working towards the same thing, that's there as well. But mm-hmm. all this needs to translate to the floor. So I'm working right now with a, um, a, a chain of businesses in Houston where they have a set of values. And one of them was integrity and I asked one of the employees what does integrity mean she had no idea they talk about integrity all the time but she doesn't know what it means and therefore doesn't know what it looks like so what we did for every one of their values is we broke it down to a list of do's and don'ts so for integrity it'd be like we always tell the truth we do what we're going to say we honor our commitments we kind of broke that down same thing for every one of their values so now employees understand what it looks like and they can be held accountable that okay then we talked about having pre-shift meetings where people get together and talk about the work but they also talk about each other they say today our uh the value of the week is fun so what is that what are each of us going to do today to express that or who is an example who caught someone doing something that promoted fun in the workplace or teamwork or customer experience other places what we've done is we have everybody go in a circle and everyone says what they like and appreciate about their fellow employees that's one of the rituals. It has nothing to do with the work being done, but right. it's about who you're doing it with. When you do this on a regular basis, you can't help but feel connected to your team and to the work. So you're then going to step up what you do for your customers. Most managers are too busy being busy to bother with this, and that's why their workplaces are adequate at best. But those who are willing to make that initial investment in culture are going to have more free time because their employees are going to be more self-motivated and they're going to stick around longer it's gonna help with a better customer experience and ultimately the, the bottom line. So culture has to be something that is actively created, promoted um, and maintained the entire time.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and you just hit on a, a big issue in the world of retail is, um, you know, getting workers to stick around, right? Stay in the job for a while. You know, many supermarket retailers are turning over their hourly workforce you know, a couple times, if not multiple times per year. I mean, and and that's just a huge uh, sort of hidden cost to them, both in terms of hard dollars, but also the impact on shoppers,
0: right? It, it and also, not- I think, Gary, yeah. where we famously see a lot of these uh, issues surface is, you know, Story execution, you know, you're sitting in the back office coming up, dreaming up all these fantastic ideas of how you can transform your business. But finally, it's the people on the floor who are executing and carrying that out. And if if you don't have, if you don't have a good strategy to manage these people and keep them excited about coming to work and rally them around this culture, it's really difficult to execute, you know, all these cool ideas that are
2: possible with tech, right?
1: So it's almost impossible.
2: So like a lot of technology that I hear about these days, it's companies that will come in and do assessments of employees, right? They're looking for workers. So the employee applies in the website, they answer all these questions. And there's a science to sort of narrow it down for those who are they feel are most qualified for the job based on criteria that is, you know, fit into it. And it's great. But at some point, you're gonna have to meet those employees, right? At some point, you're gonna have to inspire them. Yeah. Right, and what good is using to technology to find people if they're going to leave because the boss is a jerk, or because they just don't care, right? right? Yeah. Or because this job is just like this job, but this one pays another dollar per hour. So if I've got no emotional connection here, if this isn't meeting my soft needs in a meaningful way, I may as well go at a place that meets more of my hard needs. Yeah, so, we're talking so,
0: about something that AI is going to have a difficult time replacing. So right. yeah,
2: AI can't read the room. Exactly. Right. right. AI yeah. can't, and, and maybe someday it can, maybe someday it will. But at some point, here's the thing. What I love about what's happened, for just, with all kinds of reasons to love technology and, and AI, right? But what I think is that it's those people who can implement it, but still maintain that human touch, who still understands how to build connection, how to make people feel seen, whether it's the employee or the customer, um, yeah. those who can still that along with technology, they're the ones who are going to dominate their industries. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So so Scott, I, I agree with everything you're saying around your know, hourly workers and so on. How do you institutionalize many of the things you're saying, right? In a larger company where, you know, from top management, you know, down through different C level executives district managers, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you finally get down to the store manager whose salary, who oversees all those hourly workers, but you got a lot of levels in between. I, I, you know, how do you institutionalize something like this across
2: a large number of of stores or in a larger company? Sure. Well, so certainly there are the policies and procedures that could be implemented like for everything else. You know, Gelson's certainly does it. Um, they're not the largest chain of grocery stores in the country, but they're significant enough to where, you know, most people aren't interacting with the CEO of the company every day. Right. So they have to put in kind of policies that go down to the management level. So it's corporate policy at the top that at, on the floor that when a new employee is there, that they're assigned a buddy, that they're assigned a mentor, that um, every they have a policy that every year the employees of a store nominate one person for the president's award. And that one person represents the storm. What's called the president's council, and they meet, you know, regularly with the president to advise. Then one person among, you know, that group gets an award. They've put policies and procedures that are designed for that frontline worker to set them up for success, to make them feel cared about. But it's got to start with the top, right? Yeah. And yeah. so it starts with making it that choice, making it a priority, discussing it, and then thinking what are the policies that express those feelings and we can think of lots of very large companies that do it well you know they're kind of cliches the chick-fil-a's the starbucks the you know the apples that kind of thing and all of whom by the way do have problems with employees yeah. but they have but given their size they have fewer than other companies um because there are you know, policies you know in place but it has to be part of a larger culture
0: hmm. yeah no no i think this is this fascinating topic and you know for everything that you know people are excited about tech there are some things that don't change which is you know you're dealing with people at the end of the day right yeah. and, uh,
2: and I will add one thing about these larger companies is to understand that if if you think of it as a sort of a link of different you know levels, one that's very vulnerable is the one that is between the last group earning a salary and the first who are on hourly wages
0: mm-hmm.
2: right big difference there. And we have to have different thoughts and expectations of those earning hourly than those who are on salary. They're thought of differently. They're treated differently. They may not have the same opportunities. Um, they need a different kind of management than those who are get to show up at work in a white collared shirt.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating challenge because there you really have to earn their loyalty in order in order to um, drive peak, peak performance, right? Because there are also the least tethered to your business in, in that perspective, right? There's, yeah.
2: Yeah. They're the least tethered, but they also feel the least amount of loyalty. Mm. Right. Right. You know, they don't have reliable hours. You know, when things get slow, their hours might be cut. When okay. things get busy, their hours might be changed. In the meantime, they still have childcare issues and they still have so many other things that are going on. Um, and you know, they may not be getting the benefits and all the things that salary workers get. And we have to appreciate that. We can't have the same kinds of expectations.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, listen, I I, I didn't come from the world of retail that, that Gary did, but I've, I have definitely found a new appreciation for what it takes to run these stores because, you know, you know, me being an engineer, it's easy to build tech, you know, in isolation in my basement and but it's a whole different thing to run a business when you're dealing with people and i think uh we talk about a lot of tech in this in this podcast a lot of people but you know at the end of the day you know it's people and and if you don't know how to deal with people treat your customers your employees you don't have a winning business period right and uh it's it's a terrific reminder scott honestly i think this is you know we should probably have something like this every few episodes, Gary, to really remind mm-hmm. us that tech is awesome. It's terrific. It's exciting. But you know, this is this is still about people. It's still about yeah. uh, making people feel cared, people feel important, and feel special, right? And I think yeah. that's that's uh, so critical to a business no. succeeding in the long term. Well, it's Shaker, difficult.
2: if you want to plug my book every few episodes, no no complaints from me.
0: <laughs> I'm happy so, to oblige.
2: Yeah. Yeah, t- tell us about your. You, yeah, tell us about your book. when, when is yeah, it coming it out? Yeah. Where, where can uh, people yeah, get so it? Yeah, so again it's called Stop the Shift Show: Turn Your Struggling Hourly Workers into a Top Performing Team. Um it's available right now for uh, pre-sale. um all major um uh, book outlets, um booksellers. Uh, but the physical book comes out available on the shelves February 13th, 2024. Okay. So, and of course time. there'll be an ebook, there'll be um you know it'll be an audible, I you know all those things will will be there. Um, But I'm really excited. I'm already booking a lot of keynote presentations around it and workshops and trainings. And I have a lot of big plans for it because there seems to be a big need. And uh, it's something I'm so interested and passionate in. And it's a whole area of management that surprisingly hasn't really been explored too much. And so I really want to be the guy who can really help organizations with that sector of the workforce. And by the way, when people think of hourly workers, they usually think of fast food. The number one sector employing hourly workers is, in fact, retail. Yeah. So if you meet someone, they say I'm an hourly worker and you have to guess where they work. You're better off guessing they work at Walmart than guessing that they work at McDonald's because it's the largest sector employing hourly workers.
0: Right. So so yeah. what do you think? I mean, this is I know we're kind of drawing towards the end of this, but I have this question in my mind. How do you think about the gig economy? You know, I mean, this this whole thing that's popped up in the last five years. Does any of what you're talking about here you think also apply to, because there is no direct interaction in that perspective, like nobody's being managed directly, but yet these people are like Uber probably has 100,000 people who are driving cars in this country. And yet there is no direct manager type of relationship that you would see. How do you view something like this in that context?
2: I think it's a result. I think there's a reason why there's such a demand is because uh, people had such a poor experience in their regular hourly jobs that, well, as long as I'm not going to be treated great, I may as well then just go and work on my own. Plus there's other soft needs, right? Such as the flexibility, you know, for my son, that was a big deal. My son had a very good experience at In-N-Out Burger, but he wanted the flexibility and he did want, you know, more money as well. But the idea of being independent, not having to wear a uniform, he could blast music in the car, he could have friends in the car. Um, Traditional hourly work environments have not been able to provide those benefits. So Mm -hmm. what they're going to need to do to lure people away from that is provide a work experience that's that much better. And as someone who is the father of a 20-year-old and a 17-year-old, I kind of want bosses and work environments to have to up their game because (laughs) my kids are going to be be working there. I don't want them to go out of business, of course, right? Right. But I think for a lot of years, businesses will be able to get by treating their employees quite poorly, Um, thinking of them as a burden, not Mm -hmm. as someone's child. Yeah. not as someone who might be a great leader of tomorrow. And so anything that forces, look, I believe in accountability, but not just holding employees accountable. I think bosses need to be held accountable. And if bosses aren't doing the best job they can, then maybe they deserve to lose employees to DoorDash or Uber or to other kinds of things. So whatever forces people to be their best, I'm I'm all for. That, and, I tell you, and I will tell you that the organizations and businesses that I profile in my book, they're not having problems with staffing. And they're not having problems with retention and they're not having problems with profit because they're willing to do all the things necessary to bring out the best in their teams. Right. Yeah. Right. Awesome.
0: No, this has been a fantastic conversation, revelation, many, many levels. And I think listeners have absolutely enjoyed this. They're probably like, phew, finally, these guys are not talking tech. <laughs> <laughs> that's something I can understand. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's been a fantastic conversation here, Scott. Thank you so much for spending the time. Gary, yeah. anything you want to?
1: Oh, thanks okay. for uh, being with us today. Uh, I'm waiting
0: for this book to come out. I'm a big Audible guy. I, you know, I take my dogs out for a walk in the morning. And that's when I get my, you know, Audible books in. I manage to get through two, three, two or three a month. So waiting for yours so the audible is also out around the same time is that right february 13th or
2: i hope so i'm not sure i'm actually re- starting the recording next week it'll be four days in the studio so also, hopefully they can turn that around i know that there was a little for my first book there's a little bit of delay uh but there'll definitely be a um an audiobook for it
0: well i can tell you that you got a really good voice and i think uh, it'll make for some great listening so
2: well, if you can handle this voice for 8 hours, then I applaud you. I'll I'll do my best to hold your attention.
0: <laughs> it's not going to be at a stretch, Scott, so it's okay. I'm going to take it in doses, you know, 45 minutes a day. I'm sure we can get through it. <laughs> Anyways, it was terrific to have you here and you know, you know, again, people look out for the book releasing hard copy on February 14th. It's also going to be an Audible, also in your favorite stores. It's available for pre-sale and but it was fantastic to have Scott Greenberg here on the show and Gary, anything before we close out?
1: So Scott, people could reach you through LinkedIn, I assume. Uh, uh,
2: what's uh, what's uh, your email and website?
0: Well, you know what, Gary, uh, he's got a website called
2: scottgreenberg.com. That's right. scottgreenberg.com, B-E-R-G. But if you t- accidentally type B-U-R-G, it'll still get there. I pay extra for that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Well, good, good that's a pleasure, here to have really, you Really appreciate you having me. Thanks. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate
0: it. And I, listen, I just want to give a shout out also. I, I believe a couple of, was it the last episode or the episode before that? You had a different co-host, Gary? We had Stephanie on the show. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and, and she I, did yes, I, She did pretty well. I, I listened to the episode. It was pretty good.
1: No, Stephanie did a great job filling in for you. And, yep. I, and
0: I feel that now one of us can take a break if we wanted to. And I don't know if Stephanie is excited about hearing this on the podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> yeah, right. But anyway, listen, Stephanie, thank you for everything you do. She's the one who produces the show. And uh, in fact, my daughter edits the show and puts it on, on the podcast. So I want to give a big shout out to all these people who work behind the scenes and make it happen. Well, Gary and I have fun with people like you here, Scott. It's been a great conversation and uh happy holidays. I know it's coming into Christmas around the around the bend here, and we'll talk to you soon and all the best with your book. Yeah, really good luck with the
2: book. Thanks. All right, Thanks. thank you. Thank you.
0: Make sure to join us every Monday and connect with us at The Retail Perch on Instagram and Facebook.
1: And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at theretailperch at birdseye.com.
0: Until next time, this is Shaker.
1: And this is Gary, signing off.